Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have Nick Caldwell, the Chief Product Officer of Looker, now GM at Google since the acquisition on the show. He was the VP of Engineering at Reddit. He spent 15 years at Microsoft from intern all the way to GM. He has degrees from MIT and the Haas School. So I knew I had to bring my A game. But rather than do just the typical tell me about your career story, Nick suggested we switch things up. So today, Nick and I run through unpopular opinions in software. We dig out the truths hiding behind them. And basically, I just get a huge amount of advice from someone who's built some of the best products out there. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. So today we're going to do something different. I loved that when I reached out to you, you said, you know, let's do something that we don't always do, not just the typical, what's your career, what's your story type of thing. So we decided that we're going to get into some unpopular opinions, the type of thoughts that I'm sure we have all had about building products, about building teams, but stuff that we don't typically talk about. And I want to preface this with the fact that, Nick, you and I haven't actually talked through these, so I don't think either of us know what we're going to say um, <laughs> as we go into it. So hopefully hopefully this gives us some good results. This will be cool. This is going to be way more fun than the, the traditional tell me how you grew up kind of podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see how it <laughs> Perfect. Goes. Yeah. Yeah. Also, we've never met, so who knows? This could go in any direction. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to start with, Nick, one of the ones that you brought up, which is work-life balance arguments result in bullying people who like to work long hours. This is, a, as a manager, I get asked about work-life balance all the time. It's a, it puts you in a tough position because I do strongly believe that work-life balance really needs to be a choice of the individual. And where things go wrong is where, like, you know, managers or the, the company is forcing that individual to make, you know, decisions that they wouldn't otherwise make, like working extraordinarily long hours or making trade-offs between, you know, spending time with their kids. Like that's really unfortunate and is a sign of bad management or bad leadership. But the flip side of that is like, there's people who just actually like being at work. And sometimes I'm in conversations where, you know, those folks are kind of, you know, looked down upon because they want to put in extra time. That makes me sad on the other. It's like, I feel bad. For <laughs> They're like, well, I don't have kids or a family to go home to. I actually want to go home and like, you know, keep working on this project. And it's not like really acceptable to at least socially acceptable nowadays to just be like, oh, yeah, you know, if you want to spend more time at work, go for it. You have to kind of always overweight on the work aspect. If we're going to overweight on one side of those, we, we probably should overweight on, uh, you know, letting people take care of the family though. So I think the reason that it comes up as a question is, you know, it's just good to protect people, but you know, for folks who want to work long hours, like let them, leave them be, let them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also, I think one flavor of this that I think about is that, especially as a manager, you know, you don't, like you're saying, you don't want to make people work long hours and they shouldn't have to work long hours. But I definitely, when I was early in my career, worked long hours and it feels disingenuous to me to say, definitely don't, you know, go home, whatever. They don't have to work more hours, but I did. And maybe that had contributed to my success. Maybe not. I don't know. But it feels weird for me to say, definitely don't do that. But maybe if you did, it would help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I just like never and for no anyone on my team, they definitely don't need to. And they're hopefully their work is scoped properly to the week. So they shouldn't have to. But like I would do what you're saying and kind of noodle on problems or think about new ways to do things. And I'm assuming that helped me in some way. So I always feel a little bit weird being like, don't work. But if you want to, you totally can. But it's OK. I don't know. 
do whatever you want. Like in my early career, I just remember, remember being so passionate about it. Like it wasn't like my manager came to me and was like, hey, Nick, you've got to, you know, stay late. It was like I was just so enthralled with like the learning aspect of it. You know, at that stage in my career, I was jumping into other people's code bases and trying to fix bugs outside of my area. And, you know, I got like incredible enjoyment out of it. Nowadays, if I if I, I have to be careful when I bring that up because it's like, oh, why didn't you go learn to play squash or (laughs) some other other thing. (laughs) Yeah. I wish I had a a similar reason for working long hours, but I started off in consulting and it was just, (laughs) yeah, purely, purely a client needs a thing, got to get it done situation. So I wasn't in the, I'm super passionate about this bucket, but that sounds nice. Yeah. As long as, again, this is just so that people don't walk away with the wrong impression. It's like... <laughs> I think that's the point. Give people the, the freedom to choose is what you're saying. Don't beat them up either way. And then if you're a manager, make sure you're you know, not abusing people's time. I, I, you know, we definitely don't want to create environments where managers are artificially just trying to make up for bad decisions you know, in product planning by asking people to work long hours. That's not good. Definitely. Agree. All right. So next one. This is from our team over here at Drift. I won't name names, but one of the ones I got was relying on feature request tools is for fools. (laughs) So we have a principle here, which is that we don't want to get in a situation where people are voting on feature requests or, you know, stack ranking them and sort of managing by backlog. So curious to hear your feedback on this one. Well, I mean, your team is very punchy, I think. I wouldn't say they're for fools, but I I do think the underlying (laughs) um, sentiment there, you really can't at scale run your product backlog through voting. And I think most people like would agree with that. But there's kind of a cool thing that you get out of allowing customers to engage with these sort of voting experiences. And it really has to do with building like a sense of community around your, your product. So I would answer that question by saying, like, if you were a product manager and you were taking your, if you were building your backlog strictly against the votes submitted by customers, you would end up with like, um, do you remember the home, like Homer Simpson got to design his own car and he came up with like every possible feature and it was like, yes. a deal. like it could go underwater, and like a, you know, laser gun. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you let customers deliver your roadmap, you end up with like that Homer mobile. But if you create a community around your feature requests, which I think where a lot of these tools are intended, you get a benefit where you can have a conversation with customers and, and get a better sense of what they're excited about, which can give you better insights into your roadmap. And then the other thing that happens in those sorts of environments is a community feeds on itself. So if you can get customers talking to each other and supporting each other, lots of good outcomes occur as well, you know, particularly if you're working on like a developer product or, or platform product or something like that. So that's how I'd address that. I, I don't, I would split the difference there. I think like trying to, trying to build the roadmap based on feature request tools would be a bad idea, but like there are definitely some positive uh, use cases there. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. One of the things that we, we think about a lot is making sure that we have flexibility in our time to be responsive to customer requests. And you know, it's obviously a gross oversimplification, but when you manage by too much by a backlog or a list, then you, it makes it really hard to be flexible and responsive. One of the things we try to do is make sure that we don't have too much work in progress. We don't have too much on a list anywhere so that we can, if a really good idea comes up from a customer or from someone on the team, we can kind of jump on it quickly. That's one of the things behind that for us, at least. 
Yeah, actually, you bring up another good point, which is like some of your best ideas or most impactful ideas won't be things that customers can vote up. Like a lot of product management is data, but it's also like insight as well. Yep. What's the saying? Like if you uh, if you went back to the 1800s and asked people what they wanted for transportation, they would say, you know, faster horse. You would never have right. the Model T. Insight has to be a part of the, the product development equation at some stage. Yep, absolutely. All right, next one. So this is kind of a two-parter, but the first part is a fail-fast product approach causes more trouble than it's worth. So take me through that one. This is something where uh, it depends on the on the product you're working on. And what I mean by that is certain products lend themselves more to a fail-fast approach than other products. And they tend to be products that have the ability to do experimentation and have lots of data associated with them. So one thing I notice when I talk to people that work at like large social networks, like, you know, Facebook is where this comes from, right? Really, mm-hmm. so Just point that out. Like Facebook is yeah. the, the source of this, this way of thinking. But those products have, you know, billion users. You can launch an experiment. You can do complex cohort analytics. So fail fast there when they're talking about it. They really mean it from the perspective of experimentation. Now, where things go wrong, though, is like I've seen that same sort of mindset because it's been so popularized over the last couple of years with the success of, of Facebook and you know data-driven PMing in general. But if you take those same ideas and try to apply them to you know maybe like an enterprise SaaS product with you know mm-hmm. 100 customers, failing <laughs> failing fast in those <laughs> environments is a guaranteed recipe for churn. Like your customers yeah. are so pissed off at you. For enterprise products, and, and certainly, you know, if you're bootstrapping, you know, trying to get off the ground as a startup, those folks want, like, you know, predictability, and they definitely aren't going to be tolerant of failure because they can, you know, go and choose another vendor. So I think you have to be really careful as a product owner when you introduce that idea and make sure that it's applied in environments that that are tolerable for, for failure, experimental environments or environments where you have enough data to make accurate decisions at speed is where, where I think that sort of mentality helps. And in environments where, you know, you've got, you know, a small number of high touch customers, you know, trying to, trying to fail fast on them is, is going to drive your field team crazy. <laughs> like yeah. Results in churn. You have to be really careful with that. Yeah. And I, I think there's also an aspect of it that is, at a scale that a Facebook is at, you have, like you're mentioning, you have the ability to run a test really quickly with a large sample set. But maybe instead of running a test, you could have done an additional type of prototyping or user research that might have given you a similar answer that didn't require failing quickly in production. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a different approach. You you mentioned user research, for example. Definitely most Startups and most most companies in general don't have access to the amount of data and signal that a Facebook does. And I think for a product person, being able to do design thinking or customer interviews or be able to interpret research is an incredibly valuable skill. Like it's certainly for enterprise products, I don't think you can be a successful PM without having that skill. You know, there's certain companies you go to where it's it's just poo-pooed. Like, oh, you're talking to a customer, just run an experiment. That blows my mind. Yeah. I don't understand that at all. Yeah, it is, it's challenging. I, I think, again, you get lots of value out of data and experimentation, so don't get me wrong, but like the best yeah. insights I've, I've ever had in my career have all come from like sitting down with a, a customer and just talking through the challenges that they're facing. I, I strongly encourage people to just make sure that they don't you know, miss out on building that muscle in their product career. Yeah, I, I always think that 
whether or not you want to call them hard skills, but I think some of the specific skills that PMs need to have are SQL or the ability to pull and understand their data on their own and not be relying on someone else to do it for them. And then to your point, being able to run a user interview kind of on the fly, you know, whether that's structured or unstructured or whatever kind of research you're trying to do. But I think if you're able to do both of those things, you can be so much more productive and I think successful. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like in, as a PM, you want insights from wherever they'll come in whatever shape they come from. And then it's your job mm-hmm. to synthesize them in the right way. You know, if you're not data driven and can't run SQL, and if you're if you don't know how to, you know, sit down with customers and do the the interviews, you're you're missing like a whole limb in, you know, you won't be able as effective. Yep. Agree. Okay, so then this the second kind of part that I thought was related, and this comes from our team over at Drift, is it's a waste of time to architect pre-product market fit because code dies within two years. If the product is good, it will be rewritten. If not, it will be deleted when you go out of business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you guys don't pull punches over there. No, we are. We had a real good time writing, writing these ones. <laughs> but I'm not saying who wrote them because I might get in trouble. <laughs> oh, no. But, yeah, this is basically true. And it may be phrased a little bit harshly, but... When you don't have product market fit, you're, you're, uh, I was talking to Nikhil Singla from Facebook the other day, and he, he called this stage of the company the drunken walk. And he yes. explicitly said that, like, why would you, for the long term, keep the code and architecture that you made while you were drunkenly walking down the street? From- <laughs> <laughs> yes. From where you're supposed to go. So, so <laughs> I, do, I do think that there's some truth to this, which is, in the early stages, you're trying to find product market fit, and it's definitely okay at that stage to, to make some compromises on um, correct architecture in service of trying to get product market fit. But um, once you find it, though, I mean, I you know, generally speaking, I try and pivot quickly toward an architecture that does make sense. Like when, once you get into the hyper growth phase or the scaling phase of the company and you start building out complex org structures and hiring, ar- hiring architects and, and so forth and so on. For sure, it matters at, at that stage where you're, the decisions you make at that point will last quite a long time. And like, you know, technical choices, architectural choices can impact the culture of your company in, in, in odd ways. If you decide on a particular coding language, if you choose a uh, you know, to use C++ versus Python, it's going to, for the longer term, affect your ability to hire in different ways that can impact your culture. Like a lot of these things have second order effects and need to be thought through fairly clearly for the long term. But in the early phases, yeah, like that code, if you're able to write code at that phase that is both well architected and allows you to iterate through that drunken walk phase, yeah, you're you're in the 99.9th percentile <laughs> of, of developers. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of the fun part about having these unpopular opinions phrased so strongly is that I think it really provokes this type of conversation, but also really helps people put into context that maybe they really don't have to think so hard about a problem yet. Someone, I don't know who told me this, but it was kind of like borrowing trouble from the future. Yes, if it works, what a great problem that we have to figure out how to scale. But let's just figure out if customers are going to buy it. Yeah, you just buy yourself another year to worry about this problem. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's really, I I worked at a startup before Drift, and we had a bunch of team members who were, you know, really building this sort of beautiful, well-architected, super scalable product, but we hadn't necessarily solved some go-to-market challenges. And it's sort of like, well, maybe we would have been our time would have been better spent helping with that than than building for a scale that we didn't have. This is definitely one of the lessons I learned when I came to Drift was, you know, build for the 
for the current and try to get the thing done. And then hopefully you also have a culture that does go back and fixes the stuff that you decided not to do. Because I think that's also a trap you can fall into is if you, you know, you follow this mantra, but then you don't revisit, that can probably cause a lot of problems as well. Yeah, I think that's the real tough problem, like knowing when to go yeah. back and fix all this tech debt. Because there's never a clear, obvious stopping point where everyone sits down and agrees, like the field comes in, the PMs come in, the engineers all come in and go, hey, y'all, let's go fix all that architectural stuff. Right. Yeah, that, that never happens. It's usually like you start to scale and then bits of the architecture start to break and then you pick a piece apart here, pick a piece apart there, rewrite here and there. And you end up, you, you can really run the risk of ending up with kind of a Frankenstein's monster if you don't have someone nurturing growth in the right direction. Maybe, maybe no one has ever really solved that. I mean, maybe. Everyone. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask you <laughs> at Looker, how do you, how do you help the team sort of evaluate those questions? I definitely wouldn't claim that we've solved this problem at Looker. We, we do have a, a pretty wide array of technologies, but what mm-hmm. we do here is we've got an architect team and they do every quarter essentially a, a tech overview, like the tech debt that we currently have, plus they do an assessment of upcoming technologies and they feed that into the roadmap for the PM team. And then we uh, just make sure that we're trading off this sort of technical debt or re-architecture against any new feature work. Like the, the big one that we're pushing for now, we're not unique in this, but we're, we're obviously pushing for Kubernetes as our deployment mechanism. We're redoing a bit of our caching layer. We have a custom in-house caching layer that we're slowly replacing with Redis. Mm-hmm. All of these things are, are great, not just because they clean up the technical stack, but like PMs like them because they are going to unlock a bunch of new performance capabilities or Running capabilities. So, you know, essentially the, the answer is like, we just make sure that having these sort of trade-off discussions is a part of every quarterly planning cycle. Yeah, that's similar, similar with us. I think, like you're saying, we make it a point to think about what they are, not and not even just within given groups, but kind of across the entire product. And then we have to talk about them every time we go to, to do goals, just to make sure that we're paying attention and we're having the conversation and we, we're being honest about when when the right time might be to invest. Yeah, gotta do, you gotta you gotta do it regularly, and then you have to let engineers particularly know that you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's le- it's led by the the engineering team. So the director of engineering I work closely with, Bernard. You know, he's gonna come and tell me. You know, here's all the things, and I'm bringing that from the strategy side. So that's gonna help us all get on the same page. Cool, I like it. Okay, so next one, and this is one that came from your list that I loved, and that's authoritarian leadership styles can actually work. Yeah, yeah. This is. Um, I won't, I won't say who said it, but um, <laughs> we were having a team meeting and someone pulled up their LinkedIn feed. And if, if you've ever used LinkedIn, it's very positive. It's, it's, it's a, it's, you know, they really go for this kind of inspiring vibe. And um, the person asked, you know, to what extent does this actually represent reality? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if, <laughs> if you were to go on LinkedIn and, and make a description of what the perfect leader would be, it'd be like, they'd be your best friend. They would like sit mm-hmm. side by side with you when you're coding. They would never raise their voice. They would like, it, it, it's like this, this perfect person who like, you know, I aspire to be a good leader, but I've never, uh, I don't know if I've ever achieved the level of perfection for of the average LinkedIn post. The reality is it's like you can look, you know, I, want to, I don't want to bring politics in this conversation, but there's, there's definitely like real world examples recently 
yeah. where people respond positively to authoritarian leadership styles, or maybe even going beyond that, like, you know, vulgar, you know, rude leadership. Mm-hmm. Style. So I think the challenge, like, you know, I'm a really practical person. So I look at this dynamic and I think to myself, like, what do I do? What do I do about my own behavior? Like, how, how does this mm-hmm. inform my own leadership style? I think what it tells me is that I am never going to be like an authoritarian leader or someone who comes to work and wants to create, you know, an environment that is driven by fear. But I also know that there are people who will respond to that and there may be people who will take advantage of it. So what I try and do in that with that reality in in mind is I, I really kind of aggressively look for those sorts of behaviors and stop them as quickly as I can. You know, I won't go into all the different methodologies, uh, but it, mm-hmm. it makes me paranoid sometimes to know that in leadership, like we, what we're aspiring to, like the, the kind of publicly approved version of leadership, when we talk about it from, uh, you know, a tech or, or, you know, product perspective, there's so many counter examples that work, <laughs> that work <laughs> and that rely on different emotions and so forth and so on. And the reason I think it's important to acknowledge and understand that is so that it's not that we replicate them, but that we are you know, on guard and don't introduce them into our environments. So that's how I think about it. Right. So that we are intentional about the type of leadership that we're trying to be or trying to bring into a company or a situation instead of just sort of being reactive or throwing your hands in the air and saying, well, this is just how it goes. Exactly. Yeah. You don't put on, don't put rose colored glasses onto a situation that is really a manager's job to control. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. it's, It's like, Managers and you know leaders in any organization are responsible for setting the culture. You know you have to be aware that like there, there's lots of different ways to lead and be intentional about the ones that you allow to flourish in your environment. So, and sometimes that can you know you can fall into these patterns for seemingly benign reasons. Like authoritarian or more fear-based leadership styles come from. Uh, situations where you might need more urgency, right? So mm-hmm. I do a lot of consulting with um, startups and I often hear like, hey, we're so friendly. Like we have a very consensus driven, <laughs> you know, style here, but it's preventing us from getting things done. What do we do? And like, well, you obviously are going to need to make decisions more quickly, but that can be a slippery slope down into like, you know, having a dictator and you have to, right? you have to think through the consequences of uh, your leadership style choices. So that's why I, that's why I, I think that one comes up. It's about really understanding human behavior, what motivates people, and making sure that like we we choose the motivations and incentives that map to the culture we want, and that mm-hmm. we resist the urge to use the other incentives, even if they're effective. That's what we're aiming for. Yeah, and I also think there's an aspect of it that is what is authentic to you as a leader and what is going to work for you. And maybe if you haven't seen someone like you in leadership before, you don't, you don't, maybe you don't know what the right role model is. And so you're trying, people might be trying leadership styles that actually don't work. And then maybe it's also a question of, you know, what is going to be work for you that also fits within the culture that you're in? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point. You know, one of my, one of my favorite things I guess early, I don't do this so much now because I, I think I, mm-hmm. when you're a leader for a while, you kind of figure yourself out and, and stuff right. in a particular style. But but I would say like five, 10 years ago, you know, when I was just getting introduced to the ideas that like, hey, Jack Welch's leadership style is going to be different from Elon Musk or a, a Bill Gates. All of these people had different approaches. You know, if you read books or articles written by them, 
they each sort of landed on those approaches through different personal experiences and different challenges that, you know, they were facing at the time. You know, I just thought to myself, like, how does that, how does it affect the leadership style or leader that I want to be? Like, and, and you mm-hmm. have to get intentional about crafting your behaviors and how you show up. And then um, the other kind of like thing I realized is if you understand all these different styles, you can be dynamic about it. Like you can yep. say for the, for the given situation I'm in, I'll, I'll choose a different style out of my toolbox. So like my leadership style at Microsoft is different than the one I deployed at Reddit. It's different than the one I deployed at Looker. And now we're at Google and I'm trying to figure out what, what in my tool bag I need to pull out for, for this environment. You know, so I, I think it, it's fun to, to know that there's all these different ways to approach the problem. Yeah. And it's also not that like authentic leadership has to just sort of spring from within with no practice. You know, that's something that I think people think, well, well, I'm not a leader because I'm not leading. And and maybe once I become a leader, I will spontaneously become this amazing figure. But it takes practice. And it's like the leaders that you mentioned, and even for yourself, it's not like you just showed up one day and you were like, hey, I got it. You know, I have my whole thing figured out. Like, I'm good to go. Like, I'm assuming that there is some trial and error and there's some practice and there's some other stuff involved that that helped you get there. Oh, for sure. You make a lot of m- mistakes when you're trying to figure out your, your leadership style. You know, I, I yeah. think uh, that's kind of why I'm so you know harsh on this. Don't use authoritarian styles because I my background was uh, you know when I came through in my career I was early Microsoft right which right you think about it that was um, you know definitely more of a, <laughs> a combative environment <laughs> yeah so I experienced that during my early career and I kind of promised myself like even though I've seen people like use those techniques and understand the the impact they can have that that wouldn't be a a part of my repertoire yeah awesome well we are coming up on time so i wanted to ask you one last question which is you mentioned you know reading some books but what are you reading right now or listening to or have read recently that that you're really enjoying that you want to recommend oh um this is an older book. I didn't realize you're going to ask ask me this because I would have done uh, some more research. But oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I would, <laughs> um, I would I would just recommending a book to someone called uh, Design Thinking. Oh and, yeah, and yeah. It, it, the reason I, the reason it came up is um, it kind of lays out exactly how a formula or framework for empathizing with customers and in so doing figuring out insights that will lead you to building kind of amazing products. Mm-hmm. Now, I've just been talking about it, you know, because my, my PM team, you know, just did a round of user research. We're mulling over the results. So I think it's a great book if, uh, if you want to learn about how to do user interviews and that sort of thing. Yep. Is this a good time to say that, that we use Looker and I'm happy to provide feedback? <laughs> Love to just hear some, some live user research here on the on the podcast let's let's do it what do you got <laughs> no i won't i won't i won't oh, roast you no i love looker it's great i think that's it nick thank you so much for coming on the show i just got distracted by all my thoughts on looker i actually have a looker dashboard open in another tab <laughs> that i could i could look at right now that's awesome well, i'm glad you like it the product's gonna, only going to get better now that we're part of google like we're real excited that that deal finally. oh yeah yeah i mean i i think that what's amazing is Tools like that that help you democratize the metrics and the data because, you know, I can I can go into whatever service and pull my own data and that's fine. But I think being able to have something where you can do that and then share it really easily with other people and they can see it and manipulate the filters. And I think that that's been really cool to see some some sort of people who would consider themselves as, you know, I don't do math being able to go in and, and use that tool. 
You nailed it. I mean, that's essential to our core strategy. We want everyone to be able to use data to get their jobs done. In some mm-hmm. cases, that's going to be analysts or, or in some cases, it's going to be people who can't or don't want to like do the math. They just want to get something done as part of their job. So, you know, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're a fan. We're always improving things. So don't <laughs> worry. Not a fun, exciting roadmap of, for many years to come. That's awesome. Yeah, I've had I've had some people come on the show who have who have used Drift, and you know, I'm always like, am I going to get through this without getting some kind of insane feature request in the middle in the middle of this episode? <laughs> anyway, Nick, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show and taking some time to chat. No problem. I really enjoyed it. This was one of the more unique podcasts I've done, and yes. uh, thanks for putting the special format together. It was pretty yes, fun. of course.